Hello and welcome to Marketing Connected. I'm your host, Rizwana Manjur. Following the success of our Survival Instinct series, we're now launching a brand new initiative titled Life After Advertising. Life After Advertising was created amidst the global COVID-19 pandemic, which saw many ad professionals having to leave the industry and hit restart on their professional careers. Over the next few weeks, we will speak to some of the most iconic individuals in Adland who have now shifted gears and will find out how they've redirected their careers. In this week's episode, we speak to Jeffrey Sia, former Southeast Asia CEO of Starcom Media Vest Group. Jeff spent 15 years at Starcom Media Vest Group in two separate stints. His leadership led SMG to become an established digitally driven business entity in Asia Pacific and beyond. His SMG mandate had oversight of the operations of the Starcom and MediaVest agency brands across the Southeast Asia region. Jeff is now a partner at Quest Ventures, a leading venture fund for technology companies that have scalability in large internet communities with a specific focus in the digital economy. He also serves as a venture partner at Incuvest, a group of successful corporate entrepreneurs with experience starting, building, and operating valuable companies. Let's follow Jeff's journey. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you on our podcast on Life After Advertising. In your last role, you were regional CEO for Starcom for over seven years, and you were part of the management team that launched Starcom here in Asia Pacific. You helped set up the Singapore operations. Can you tell us a little bit about the time that you left the ad world? The ad world, I think the ad world has never left me. Uh, I'm still right in the bits of it, but in a much different way. Uh, officially, I left an advertising-related entity in 30th of June, 2016. And um, it seems so long ago because uh, I had, at the time when I left, I had to serve two years of non-compete. But it, it became one year, which was a, a good thing because uh, I, don't, I don't want to sit at home and then uh, collect money when money can be used in much better ways uh, by other people. Uh, but it has been a journey since then. And I also sat almost like a fly on a wall witnessing the change. So much so that the changes have actually drawn me 100% back into the advertising world. So for our listeners who don't really know what you've been up to with Quest Ventures, can you tell us a little bit about the company? Quest Ventures is a venture capital company. Uh, what we sometimes we call ourselves venture capitalists, right? It started uh, in... 2011 by my partner James Tan on uh, 11, 11, 11, right? I think everyone was shopping to buy things. He was shopping to buy a domain space, right? So he started 11, 11, 11. And his primary raison d'etre at the time was to encourage the development of the tech ecosystem and that technology will bring economies of traditional world into the digital world. And that speak that will bring a lot more value and optimization of people's lives. Quest Rangers at the time saw that if you apply technology and many other things correctly, what you will get is that you will get a lot of whole scale replicability of thinking, of businesses changing, innovating, and uh, for a better phrase, today's word, 
transformation. So we invested in companies that encourage that at the very early stages. So some of our, our early investor companies were Carousel, Shopback, 99Co, Asgag, Style Theory. And then today we continue to do so. Quest Ventures are doing our second fund. And uh, early on, it was all our own uh, super angel money, our own personal money. Today, we have uh, with this fund, we have two sovereign wealth funds involved in it, which is the Masics of Singapore and Kastek of Kazakhstan government. And both of them are trying to bring massive change to the economy. And that's why they were involving with us. And uh, in a roundabout way, it seems like I'm doing advertising all over again. I know you said that this is a natural evolution for you, and rightly so, given you were running a media agency. And now, as you mentioned, you work with a lot of media companies. And we know that media companies have been struggling for a while now. So sitting at the peripherals, yet interacting with the core, what do you feel are some of the issues plaguing the media industry as a whole? For all media companies, everyone starts with two genesis of a question. First, they think that content is sacrosanct. It is a sacred account that cannot be touched. And they also feel that commercialization of content sometimes affects the integrity of the content. So where is the balance and where, where will the dividing line be? So that's one part. Second part of the media company, the common often, often many media companies are not a content company. They are actually a channel company. They are held ransom by their channel. The channel refers to the container that holds the content. A publishing company, a TV station, uh, the newspapers, they are held ransom by the amortization of the printing plant. A television station, a because of the infrastructures required that they have, they have put in place to transmit the stuff. So today, the media company, the content, a good content of media companies remain very relevant to people. In fact, they are highly sought after. If they are not sought after, there wouldn't be such things as clickbait. Clickbait are by nature things that people want, but they are just being invited to click it. Most people who click into clickbait articles want the article. That's why they click into it. Likewise, there's also a lot of piracy because people want content. So the question is, how do you put a content and in what containers should this content reside? And are the containers of the past still relevant today? On that point, are the containers of the past relevant today? It goes back to the customer, the consumers, right? Society changes really fast. And uh, I, get, I draw a parallel example from the telco sector. When 3G, the third generation airwaves came, I remember I was very young then. And I said, my God, 3G allows me to watch football on my mobile phone. I thought it was great. It was just that the cost of watching was very expensive. But hey, man, there's no need for me to be at home. I can watch football anywhere I want. Then came 4G. And 4G allows the data, the football match, to be so high resolution. I can even see the actual replays. I can even see a, a footballer mouthing a vulgarity, right? It became such a space. But the 3G guys, technology, cost a lot of money. But it gave them 15 years of, to amortize the technology. 4G is now being amortized probably eight, nine years. And now 5G is here. But the cost of 5G is 20 times that of 4G. And they probably have last a cycle of three years. So that, is it worthwhile to have 5G technology? So likewise, on a digital channel like watching football on a mobile phone, the price equation comes in. So today, what is your lifestyle? I think there's still a place for books. 
Then there's consumption. Today's choice of consumption is about my time. And it's not just the convenience of it. It's also the actual value creation of it. Because if you can choose it and sit on a, before you go to bed and watch a, a Andrea Marcelli concert with your wife, with my wife, I mean, that kind of bonding, you can't usually find it. You sometimes have to go to a live concert to watch it, take a flight to see him. But now you can do it beside each other, right? As you tone down for the day. Now, the habits of the customer today have changed. But the investment behind the containers, are they worthwhile for a changing customer? And that's a challenge today. Many media companies today are looking to go independent. Independent as in, they feel like they become a co-working space. Is that a newspaper becomes a co-working space. So every reporter is one of the tenants of the co-working space. You come on, you rent a space, we publish you, and then we share the revenue streams. So could that be the new model for publishing? Who knows? We all know the importance of digital. It's undeniable. And even just recently, the Singapore government announced that it will be aiding companies who are taking the initiative to digitize their processes. Now, call me old school, but I always wonder, can the physical world as we know it really be replicated in the digital space? Won't the elements such as touch, smell, feel go missing? I think the space, the value of a consumer, a human, gets out of a physical touch or being at a space or being in a captive audience is directly proportional to his past experiences, all right? How he has been conditioned or how he or she has been conditioned or disconditioned or unconditioned not to feel, not to feel senseless to anything will determine how much value they put into it. We are growing up with, uh, I'm watching a generation of young, young kids growing up that understanding that they can choose their life, manage their life via, the, via digital means. I've seen younger people deciding that when they got their first paycheck, they want to buy their first insurance product. There's no need for them to meet anyone. They are more comfortable asking robo-advisors, right? So the question is, are there enough robo-advisors that can advise older people like me? who are used to having someone buy me coffee, tea, lunch, dinner, give me a free diary every year, and uh, once in a while send me a birthday cake because it's my insurance agent, right? But so my experiences were conditioned by what I felt in the past. When there is a massive change, uh, disproportionate, irreversible change, lifestyles and consumptions change. I draw the example 1994. I'm sure you were still in school, right? Well, no? And that was the year. Uh, that was a year. I was working at Ogilvy and Mesa. And then uh, my colleague, she sat opposite me. We were talking, and then she had received a new brief for a product. And the product was a weird product. It cost $1,200 US dollars. You can, you can use it in certain places. And then it was called a handphone, right? It was by a company called Nokia. It was so expensive. And then we had a good laugh. We said, who will want to carry such a thing when it's so heavy, there's so much radiation and it costs so much money and who do you want to call on the move? You're either probably a, a soldier, a policeman, a doctor, a spy, or an illegal bookie. Then you carry a phone. And we said, yeah, I'll never take off. And the guys were saying, oh, how do you put that in, your, in my nicely pressed uh, Amanda Gilder, Zegner suit, right? I mean, you put a phone in my pocket, looks so ugly. So we thought that it was something out of the world. We thought it was stupid. We thought it was extraterrestrial. And we were shocked. 
in two years, it became the most sought after thing. It was more important than Louis Vuitton. And the people's lifestyle changed because now there are no more privacy. In the past, you don't yell with your wife or your girlfriend over the phone in a public transport. Now people do that all the time. So I think that when you get a seminar moment when the change is irreversible, the value you start to see and, and learn over time, that change will stay. So to your point, to the question, I give a long, long day answer to this, to the point whether the platforms of today, of previous years will stay remain, it depends on the value you create for the customer. So that brought us back a little bit to your days in the ad world with Ogilvy. Is there anything that you really miss about the advertising world? I miss uh, quite a lot of things on it. Uh, one, I felt that there was always a mission in the advertising world, right? The mission to change, to make things better, better than yourself yesterday, and to bring a lot of delight to customers and customers. We felt that, that we were like the original place of uh, what I call a DMZ, uh, demilitarized zone, because there was a corporate guys who are very famous, right? Big and smart, intelligent, all the Six Sigma, my Procter & Gamble clients, my Unilever clients, my Samsung clients, you know, they, my Mondelez clients, they know everything about everyone. Then on the other hand, there was the guys with the thing things, hey, try to do this better. This can, we can do this better. This can change the world. This is a game changer. Everyone was using such stuff. And in between, there was the advertising guys who were trying to listen to both sides of the world. We were 50% confident of what we know. Some people think we are egoistic. And the other 50% of us were very paranoid. One thing to say, my God, how does this all work out? So it was a bipolar culture and the bipolar culture actually works very well with people who are comfortable in working in shades of grey. That's very well put, Jeff. I know you didn't want to touch too much on the COVID-19 situation, given that it's been covered so extensively. But, you know, in the time that we're in, I have to ask you, with so many agencies now struggling, do you see the agency model changing as we ride this wave? I think the agency will serve as a translation engine for a long time, translating things that were new and different and putting into the real world. They also have very good conflict management skills, the agency culture, conflict management skills, and also what we call onboarding skills today, getting people to try new things and encouraging this. Today, the tools for onboarding are manifold. Examples like Cambridge Analytica, it tells you that campaigns on social media with your friends, around your friends' needs and likes, can actually subconsciously onboard you to a new way of life without you knowing. This onboarding process it's not so deliberate these days compared to my time. In the old times, you, you talk about Krugman's three heat frequency. You're going to run an ad three times. You're going to you're, you're write your copy, long form, short form, the pictures on the left or right. And my art director and copywriter friends of mine who are still very active on Facebook and remembers, continues to talk about the hemispheric processing theory in the brain where we see things on left and right, right? But I think we have evolved. We have now seen things in many different light. That's why humans have, are in continuous partial attention. I call it a CPA, right? Continuous, continuous partial attention. We have multi-screens. So we have learned to look at things in very different and very fast ways. So in that space, the agency world being the translation engine, will you still have languages that you know they can translate? And do you know what output languages? This is a challenge. How do you continue to learn the evolving world, and yet at the same time, dish out advice. It's almost like learning to be a doctor on the go. Not easy. 
you need people with capacity, capability, and maybe one of the phrases that we have talked about, the ability to have jack of all trades, master of 10. You need to have that kind of mindset. So this role is one, finding the right people, right mindset, and people giving you a chance. And the second element to the agency world is the pricing model. Agency world was built on a B2B model, business to business model, right? A client hires someone, pays you a fee, you solve the problem, you the marketplace. Today, the agency's job is not about bringing the horse to the water. You have to bring the horse to the water, make the horse drink the water, spit out the water, and drink back the spit out water, and drink it again. Because you are supposed to get the customers. Now, it has become a B2B2C model. But the agency business still works a lot on based on fees, commissions, and also a lot based on network wins. If it's going to be a hyper-local way of working, where even customers are different in every market, or customers are similar across a tech platform, then the agency does not need to be a network anymore. You technically can serve a lot of people without being having an office in every country. So those are seminal questions, going back to the construction of agency model and what value it creates. But the value creation itself is not important. It's the time to revisit the pillars, the tenants that used to build value for the agencies. Today, they wrote value. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's really about learning on the job while the situation changes so immensely. So you really need a high caliber of talent. But in markets like Indonesia, where there's a really strong startup culture, we speak to some of our agency friends and they tell us that they're losing their talent to the startup and tech scene constantly. Why do you think that is? I think uh, the startup cultures of today represented the Ogilvy days of 1994 for me, where I'm not judged by who I am, but if I have an idea, I see things. I'm sensitive enough to see the marketplace. I have a respect a lot for, I have a lot of respect for the marketplace. In fact, one of the pieces of uh, learnings I picked up from the years in the agency world was, I learned to respect the non-living things. There are certain trends and things that are non-living. They're not human. And I don't even learn or read about them from books or from business schools. But I know that they are there. I see those things there and I respect them because non-living things can actually drive trends. I think the startup world of today, if they continue in the right way, they give a lot of people a chance to fulfill their full potential. Startups, just like original disruption places, are the places where you see ideas, businesses, and people fulfill their maximum potential. And many of them know that the potential will never be maximum because all they want to be is better than themselves yesterday. If you are better than yourself yesterday, that means you're on a continuous proof to improve yourself. So we see that and the cultures of startup world required. What I just said in the last 20 seconds was what the agency world used to be. But today, the agency world sometimes are constricted by a certain way you do. Like I talk about the data agencies. They only can do the data in a certain way because of the company's policies. If you are working for a French company and you are hosted in Paris, the French privacy laws take supersedes everything in America privacy laws. If you are a British company working with a British set of data, and throughout your entire network of agencies across the world, you try then to follow the Commonwealth way of understanding data. So there's a lot of constraints. There's also a lot of vendors constraints. You sign many of the agencies who are supposed to bring clients neutral solutions. Today, sign joint business plans with many of the vendor partner suppliers. 
by that act itself, you have moved yourself to a non-neutral world. Right? And being non-neutral does not do well being a translation engine. So seeing you work with a lot of startups, what do startups require to grab the attention and funding of VC investors? Is there a successful strategy? We look for founders who are very grounded. Grounded in terms of you have a sense of reality, but you also can imagine the journey of change. If you see a gap, a few gaps in the marketplace, you say, I'm going to fix this gap. I think I have a way to drive myself, put a wedge into this, create this gap. And I also know the impact it has on everyone and everything around it, whether the end customer, the current players, the industry, the trade. And they probably have a clear plan that they can share with you how they're going to achieve that. But within that itself, the plan is there. They also need to understand how they can put a team together. Unlike uh, the corporate world where I came from, right? I mean, I had a lot of uh, colleagues uh, in other agency networks who used to be in my position. They had two, three PAs, right? They had a certain set of business class travel, certain ways of doing things. When in startup world, you start with a clear solution, finding a solution to a identified problem. And you don't have the luxury of uh, budgets. You only have cost. Your profit will only come if you get a product out that people accept and pay for you. So we have people who have who are visionaries who can uh, see where the gap is, many visionaries of their own, and then they have the unyielding determination to drive towards that. But there are also in our set of startups, founders who are very good at raising money. But that said, because many of the VCs can, come from uh, investment banking background, so they invest based on trends. And all these people follow uh, Warren Buffett, right, on a trend. But today, uh, the moment Warren Buffett dumps all his airline stocks, all the agencies decided not to pitch for airlines as well. It's interesting because uh, the two things come together. So we see that uh, the startup world, we've looked for people who are different, who can see it, uh, driven by a lot of passion and also very clear, grounded set of determination to get it done. And usually these people are so sought after that when they look for money from one person, they get about five different people trying to give them money. So what's more important when you're investing? The business model, the team, or the leader? It is the mindset. The mindset of always being constant evolution, but with a discipline to stay true to the vision that they have. Uh, the market forces will come really hard and fast. All right? There's a lot of bullying. There's also a lot of uh, entrapment. And uh, children, horses are plenty. But many people, many of them are trying to find their path forward. And but that innovation and challenging part requires a lot of different people to come forward. So many of the good startups start to look for people and as they get the ideas straight. And many of them actually, uh, in my early years, doing angel investment and working with them, they start to ask me, Jeff, if they can hire some of the people from my ex-agency. They say that, hey, I uh, like to hire some people from Starcom in the West Group because your culture was always about digital and very change and stuff. So it wasn't a surprise that a lot of my ex-colleagues from Starcom Midwest Group all went into the big uh, tech companies. So the roles, the mindsets that remain are important. And then I think you can see that the two things are so gelled together. You see so many advertising people in the startup world because those who have that discipline will have the discipline being used fully in the startup world. I understand where you're coming from. The mindset certainly plays a huge role. But if you had to choose between a business model or a team, what would be more important for you? 
the team is everything. I think uh, you get the right team, you can do well. Sorry, I missed your question earlier. Uh, the business model, because in the startup world, the moment you launch a business model, there'll be five people copying you. The difference is the team. The business model will never be sacrosanct to one company. Everyone will just copy. For every Alibaba, there is many Alibabas out there in different various shapes and names, right? So it's always the team, it's always the people. When should startups decide to raise VC funding? When they are ready with their market entry plan and they have a product, they are quite clear, or a service they are quite clear, and they have got customers who are come on. What the VC does is give them some money to help them scale up their plan, introduce them to people, open the markets fast at a speed without the incumbents realizing it and without the copycats coming on. That's when they come. When they have uh, something what we call a MVP, a minimum viable product, all right? But I think uh, that's just a technical term or, uh, you know, label that comes from the advertising world, MVP. But all it is is the product people pay money for. So with all that is going on in the world, what kind of startup business models do you think can succeed in this economy? I mean, recently there was a headline that questioned if the coronavirus was hitting the unicorns. So what kind of startup business model do you think can survive today? I think the business models, um, if I, I look at it from a more financial perspective, the business models today need to be a bit more robust, a bit more mainstream. In the past, the startup business model was any customer that wants to buy their thing, they will just take the customer and pay the price for it and then collect the revenue. But today, you need to be more systematic and organized. The revenue streams must be very clear. And like you must have clearly making money from the product and from different revenue streams. I struggle to understand how a company can be a going concern if you don't have a plan to turn yourself around. Some of them start with buying market share. That's not a problem. You can buy a market share. But up to a certain point, you must know how to make revenue, make money. A uh, couple of challenges we have, right? When I see startups, uh, the unicorns, right? Many of the unicorns were unfairly being driven, the valuations unfairly driven high because of uh, the investors behind them. So they never had, were given a chance to fulfill their full potential. So that's the challenge as well. So startups suffer the same problem as the main traditional companies. You just need to manage investors well. So let me give you a hard question, Jeff. If you had to choose between the ad world and the startup world, what would you choose? Advertising world. I think the advertising world of my time when I started, yes. Advertising world, maybe 10 years, 12 years ago, yes. Maybe not the advertising world now. The advertising world today now uh, tough because of a lot of legacy profits from the old days. So people can't be win off that. So everyone's trying to give itself another bet, another innings at the same way of doing things. Hopeful that it will change and return to the past glory. I tend to want to see that, I tend to want to think that the, the environment you operate in will determine where I work, all right? I think the environment of the start world today reconcile very clearly with why we started an advertising world, which was about disruption and brave. It's not too heady in the head, but at the same time, you are quite clear what you can do and what you and your and your potential, the opportunity, the chances of getting a potential fulfilled is much higher. So, what's next for you, Jeff? I think that uh, in this last few years of uh, digital transformation work with a lot of um, a lot of Asian families, with my other companies, and all of them have become investors in Quest Ventures as well because they believe that uh, digital transformation could be driven by access to the ecosystem. 
I think I have a chance to be involved in building the new ecosystem that used to be the advertising world. Right, a new ecosystem of disruption, innovation that actually will bring real economic benefit to everyone in society, financial value to people in the stock market, and most importantly to the end customers. Before the COVID-19, we saw how the hospitality trade was disrupted by Airbnb. We also saw how much democratization of the airline tickets will change after all the online booking systems. Suddenly, all the tour agencies that used to make 40-50% margin of end traveler disappeared, right? The value was very clear. And suddenly, uh, we could see them go to any part of the world we want. COVID-19 set us back a bit. It's a good check because uh, those models that are solid will return more robust. Those models that are built a bit on cuts will now have to find their own new legs. Those models that never had a model will never be around anymore, right? And we are seeing the same thing with the traditional businesses. Coming out of this COVID-19, we will see in probably a few more Kodak moments, they will become memories, uh, not just physical photos, the memories will come back very fresh. And I, I'm worried because uh, I also realized that this COVID-19 and digital transformation has technically cut away a lot of middlemen, which also means that the global workforce, there'll be a substantial percentage will become not just unemployed, I think you'll become unemployable. That concludes this week's episode of Life After Advertising. To stay on top of trends, learn to reskill and upskill your capabilities, and grow your professional network, head to www.marketing-interactive.com. We'll see you there.